Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Church, excited to be with you. My name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff, and get to be your teaching pastor for uh, today for the next couple weeks. Um, about 20 minutes before I got here today, I got hit with a, a retinal migraine. If anyone has retinal migraines, and if you're unfamiliar with that, your my fingertips went numb, my mouth went numb, and I got to where I could only read about uh, half of the letters that exist on, on a page, and so. The first service well, it was uh, it went, it went okay for where we were where I was at. It was okay. Um, it got a lot better towards the end, and it is much uh, better now. We even had a, a doctor in the house who talked me through what was happening and like worked on my neck, and so it's gotten better. But all that to say, if I don't make any sense for you today, okay, just there's always next week, okay. Next week I will try to pull it all together uh, for you. I might need a little bit of help, uh, and I'm gonna need a whole lot of grace, okay. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to um, just submit myself and us over to prayer before we begin, and we'll tackle Revelation 7. Father in heaven, uh, just as I prayed earlier, Lord, uh, the reality is whether I feel 100% or I feel terrible, I am equally in need of you, uh, in my best and at my worst. And so in some ways, God, I do pray for healing, uh, and in other ways, I have to thank you for the suffering as it helps me keep mindful of the suffering of our Jesus that he endured on the cross. My suffering is nothing in comparison. And, and so in some ways, I pray for healing, and in some ways, I thank you for the dependency that you've brought today. So we thank you for that. I pray, God, that you give me the words. Uh, give me your strength. Give me your confidence. Give me dependent upon your Holy Spirit in concert with your word uh, to see the beauty of the gospel in the text today. I pray that above all, that I would be able to lead us uh, to conviction, lead us to see our need uh, for you and the reality that you have literally accomplished everything in our place to redeem us. We simply get to find rest today in your perfect work as you are the lamb, as we just heard. So God, we thank you for salvation. Pray for those in the room that know you well, God. May their affections be renewed. Pray for those in the room that are not yet believers. Uh, maybe today will be the day, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. And amen. And so we're currently in the book of Revelation, looking specifically at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so if you've missed, or if you're new today, let me give you a, a little bit of a, a synopsis, kind of a summary uh, of where we have been. The Apostle John has been exiled to the island called Patmos because he was preaching uh, the gospel. While on Patmos, John is given a revelation, not a series of revelations. It's not revelations, it's revelation. He's given a revelation as to who this Jesus is. And so as we enter into this book, we have to keep mindful that this book is written to the early church first, not to us first. So we don't get to transpose our culture into the book of Revelation. We don't get to do that for any book in the Bible. We're not going to do it for this book either. That means that what it, what it did not mean for them in the early church, it also cannot mean for us. We can't just put ourselves in the text all of a sudden. We're not allowed to do that 
with anything. And so Revelation uh, gives us an understanding of why some things are happening now. But most importantly, the book is for them, written to them, and we get to benefit from it. So in chapters 1 through 3, John begins with the revelation of Jesus. In chapter 1, he's brought to his knees before this Jesus. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, John addresses the early church, and he gives some commendation, and he gives some challenge. He says, hey, there's some things you need to work on. There's some things that are going great. Those things that are true for the early church are also true for us now. There's incredible warning there in the church. And then he begins from that point to kind of look through a different window. He addresses the church and he kind of looks through these different windows where he's received a revelation. In chapter four, John sees the saints worshiping and we get introduced to this angelic host and they're all singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And we get to see this beautiful worship service that takes place. And then in chapter five, as we just heard in the liturgy and in the songs, we're introduced to this scroll that no one can open and all of history kind of exists in that scroll and they're saying who is worthy to open this open this scroll and the apostle john is like who's going to open it he literally thinks no one can open the scroll and he becomes sad and then the beauty of this whole thing is that the lamb enters in jesus enters in and he's like everyone's like you're worthy you're the one that gets to do it well why does jesus get to open the scroll well revelation 5 9 tells us, it says this, so they sing a new song. They're not just singing holy, holy, holy anymore. They sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every language, from every people and every nation, verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Who can open this scroll? Who can break the seals? Jesus can. Why is that? Because he's the only one that is worthy. He's the one who surrendered his blood, given his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. If you missed the gospel, this is that moment right now, okay? In case you're wondering if it's going to get preached. It's happening right now. That is the gospel. That is the point of the book of Revelation, to say this is who Jesus is, not who we are, but this is who he is. Chapter 6, then, last week, we were introduced to the six seals. The seventh seal will be opened later in the eighth chapter. But Pastor David walked us through the first seal, which was the white horse, the Antichrist, who's coming to kind of wreak the demise of the church. Seal 2 was the red horse, the war between humanity. Tell me there's not a war between humanity, a cultural war that is taking place even right now, yes? Especially in the last couple of weeks, yeah? Verse 3, or not verse 3, I apologize. Seal 3, there was a black horse which was represented the famine. And what Pastor David hit, he nailed it whenever he said, the, the black horse brings everything you want, but not what you need. He said, keep the oil, keep the wine. Those are things that we might want, but they were not things that we need. That horse keeps us in famine. We saw the pale horse, which was the color of puke, I think is what he said, if you remember, which was sickness and death. No one says, right? I love dirty green yellow. That's my favorite color, right? That's like the color of this horse. That's what we saw on the fourth seal, sickness and death, calamity that takes place. Verse five was the martyrs. I'm sorry. Seal five was the martyrs. Again, not all my words are going to be accurate. Seal six was global catastrophes, earthquakes, further famine that happened. Listen, stay with me. Chapter five, okay, began with who can open this seal. Chapter six ended with who is worthy to stand, before this God, who is worthy to stand 
before this lamb. Chapter 7 is the text that we are in today. And chapter 7 is a picture of who can stand before the one who can open the scroll. It's a picture of who can stand, who's been made spotless, whose name of Christ has been placed upon us, written on our foreheads, it says. That's important because later on we're going to hear about some others that have a different name written on their forehead. Chapter 7, if you think about it like this, the Apostle John is kind of zooming into the picture. So he has this beautiful picture of worship, and he's saying, hey, we're going to take a minute here. We're going to zoom into chapter 7. I'm going to show you what I saw. I'm going to show you, rather, who I saw worshiping this Jesus. Chapter 7, to sum up the first part of it, we're reintroduced to the four angels that we were introduced to in chapter 3. You still tracking with me with all this? This is a lot. It's a lot. But chapter 7, we're reintroduced to the four angels that we're introduced to in chapter 3. These four angels are holding back the four horsemen. The four horsemen most certainly were reigning during their time. They're most certainly reigning during our time. But they're not reigning in the same ways that they will one day reign. This is just the birth pains of what they are going to be released to do. So these four horsemen, while they are running wild and tyrannical in some ways, are being held back by the four angels that we were introduced to. Does that make sense? You still with me? Okay, that means that the four horsemen are not more powerful than the ones who hold them back. God is sovereign over that angelic host that is keeping them at bay, right? They're they're not going to affect the church, church. Calamity can come. The church will flourish, Like, look at cultural wars that are happening right now. The church flourishes. There's nothing about the mission of God that has stopped. It's an unstoppable mission of God. If you look across church history, these four horsemen, while they do have an impact on us, we've only continued to grow, right? So there's nothing to worry about, and nor is there then anything to fear. That's important. Because some of you have been raised in Revelation as a book that is fearful and tyrannical and scary, yet the promise to the saint, to those who are sealed in Christ, is not fear. It's worship. We win. We win this thing. So who are sealed? Who are marked? Who can stand, John says? It is those who have been sealed in Christ. In chapter 8, next week, Lord willing, today goes well. Chapter 8, we will open that seventh seal and things are going to get a little apocalyptic and crazy. But for today, man, it is just worship, church. It is a picture of worship. And so the big idea is this. God is able to keep you faithful in the midst of suffering. Suffering happens now. Suffering is most certainly going to happen in the future. The Lord himself is faithful to keep you faithful in the midst of suffering. There's three points I have for you, okay? It's going to be a lot of information for you today. Three points. Old Testament covenant faithfulness is the first point. We're going to see that the Jews, the Apostle John sees the Jews worshiping, those who are faithful in the Old Testament, faithful to the covenant. The second point we're going to see is New Testament covenant faithful. That's faithfulness. That's for the Gentiles. That is non-Jews. That's post-Jesus. That's us. New Testament covenant faithfulness. And because he's faithful in the old and faithful in the new, the third point then is eternal covenant faithfulness. He's eternally covenantly faithful to us. I'll get into what all that means. And so we're going to pick up then in verse 4, chapter 7. If you're ready, say you're ready. Ready. Chapter 4 says, sorry, chapter 7, here we go. Chapter 7, verse 4 says this. Again, just give me grace uh, today if I fumble. 
And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So let's pause there. This is 144,000. This is a number of completion. This is a number of absolution, a number of perfection. These are the saints, the Jews, Israel, who were faithful to the covenant promises of God. I do not believe that it is a literal 144,000. If you just do a little bit of math, there's a lot of folks that aren't making it in. If you just do a little counting in the Old Testament, right, some of them ain't making it in there, okay, 144,000. He's going to say in a moment, 12,000 from this tribe and this tribe and this tribe. That 144,000, as far as we can tell, is a number of absolution, is a symbolic representation for the nation of Israel, those who were given the original promise. I'm going to unpack that more in just a moment. But if you read Revelation 7, 5 through 8, it continues in verse 5. And we won't read all this verbatim for the sake of time, but I'll hit you with some of it. Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. Verse 6, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. And then he, con- he continues in these derivatives of 12,000 equaling 144,000. He's saying this is the complete and perfect picture of Israel, those who were faithful to the covenant promises that were found in the Old Testament. And it is these Jews who are worshiping this Jesus. Well, why would he start with the Jew? Well, because the promise was to the Jew First, Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. To the who first? To the, y'all better help me out. To the <laughs> Jew first. Yeah, pastor's feeling a little better this round, okay? <laughs> to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, to the ethne, to the nations, to the Gentile, but to the Jew first. And so the apostle John begins there, verse 17, for In it, the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what? Well, for the Jews, faith in the Old Testament promises, in the Old Covenant, in the promise that there was a Messiah that would most certainly come and bring salvation to them. Even though all the Old Testament saints don't get to see this Messiah, they live by faith alone that he's coming. Let me further expound upon this. Can I t- let me teach you a little bit about covenant. Can I teach you a little covenant theology this morning? Is that all right? Can I do that? Can I teach you that? The Old Testament, as we commonly refer to it, yeah, the Old Testament is actually referred to, called the Hebrew covenant. It was originally given to the Hebrews, not to us, but to the Hebrews, that is to the Jews, and covenant then means an unconditional promise. It is an unbreakable promise. I want you to think about marriage in the sense of the biblical sense of marriage, maybe not in the cultural sense of marriage, most certainly, maybe not even the way you've experienced marriage, unfortunately, but think with me for a moment about marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a promise. Marriage is supposed to be an unbreakable promise made between a man, made between a woman, just as God is unconditionally, faithfully, covenantly faithful to us. Does that make sense? Marriage should be in representation of how God treats us in the midst of our tyranny, how he treats us. He's covenantly faithful regardless of how we respond. Well, God has made a 
covenant, one covenant that continues to get expounded upon throughout the Old Testament. There's a covenant made with Adam and Eve. There's a covenant made with Noah. There's a covenant made with Abraham. There's a covenant made with David. It's called covenant theology. The promise does not change. It just gets expounded upon. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Say yeah. Okay, even if you're lying to me, okay, there's repentance. We'll get there. Okay, it's not a new covenant. It's just a more specific covenant that takes place. Now, within every single covenant that exists in the Old Testament, there are seven aspects to every single covenant. For the sake of time today, I'm going to give you two of those aspects. A covenant here will be on the screen. A covenant is both legally and spiritually binding. I'm going to take you somewhere, and I, if I can nail it, dude, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to be incredible. If I don't nail it again, I'll hit it next week for you. I literally wrote in my notes, just slow down for a second. So let's take a breath. Let's do this thing. A covenant is legally and spiritually binding. I hope that this goes the way that I think it can. By God's grace, it will. When God makes a promise, he is legally bound to that promise. There has to be, if God breaks a promise, breaks his covenant, there has to be a physical consequence for his actions. He must be found guilty. If God makes a promise, he then is also spiritually bound to that promise. If he breaks his covenant, if he breaks his promise, then there has to be a spiritual separation from humanity. If God, you say it another way, if God does not keep his promises, he's not holy. If God does not keep his promise, he's not covenantly faithful. If God does not keep his promise, he's not worth worshiping. If God does not keep his promise, then he's a liar. That means he's not just. That means he cannot be a judge. That means he must be judged. So there has to be a physical consequence if he breaks covenant. There also has to be a spiritual consequence, a separation from him. You still tracking with me? In, he, in, in, in the book of Genesis chapter 15, Father Abraham, that's a covenant most of us should be familiar with, Father Abraham that our kids sing about. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant, an Abrahamic covenant with God the Father. He says, you will be the father of many, what? Nations. Your offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky and as much as sand around the sea. That's what is the promise to Abraham. Whenever God makes that covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, God cuts a bull in half, and then he physically passes through that bull. The imagery that God has given us is covenantal. He's saying, Abraham, Father Abe, if I don't keep my covenant with you, let the same thing happen to me. If I am a liar, let me be physically cut off. Let me experience the justice that I deserve. If I am a liar to you, let me be spiritually cut off. Let me be separated from you. Are you still tracking with me? He's saying, you can hold me accountable if I do not keep my covenant. Right? This is exactly why the Father sends the Son. Think about the cross. Here's the gospel for you again. Whenever Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross in our place as our substitute because we don't keep the covenant. We don't do that. Right? We're full of sin. On our best days, we still don't keep the covenant. It's just the reality of the situation that we're born into. And so whenever Jesus goes to the cross, he has to 
physically experience death in our place as our substitute, a legal consequence. Still tracking with me? He also, the Bible says, has to be separated from the Father momentarily. He has to be spiritually cut off because of our breach, our break of covenant. Still tracking with me? Okay, so Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are there, yes, but Abraham, sticking to Abraham. Abraham is given this covenant. Sarah is given this covenant that they will receive an offspring that is far more than they could imagine, that they're going to receive a land that is far greater than they could ever, ever imagine. I'm going to further expound upon it. I promise I'm trying to take you somewhere. Hebrews 11 speaks to this very thing. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll bump to 8 in a minute. Now, faith, it says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith does not mean we see everything perfectly. There's things we hope for that we cannot quite see. For, verse 2, for by it, that's faith, the people of old received their commendation. commendation. The people of the old covenant, the Old Testament, the Hebrew covenant received their commendation. boy, Good job is what that means. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So let's pause. All the writer of Hebrews is saying is faith is about hoping for things that you cannot always see. They're not always tangible things. That's why it's called faith. There should be some things that we don't fully get and fully understand. He starts off with those as part of the old covenant. They receive their accommodation for that. boy. Good job in your faithfulness. Way to be faithful. Now, verse 8. Let's bum down because this is specifically about Abraham. Listen. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. He went out, right? Just on faith, went out. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Again, on faith, could not see the thing he was called to. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live in a land of promise, a land of covenant, a land that had been offered to him as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. They're his heirs that were promised to him, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to, Father Abe was looking forward to a physical city that had been promised by an invisible God. You still tracking with me? So God makes this promise. He's walking in faith to look for this. Verse 11, his wife, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. She was past the age of being able to conceive, since she considered him faithful who had promised, not Abraham, but God. Verse 12, therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, because Abraham was old as dirt, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, as they're promised. That's what they were promised. You still with me? It's a lot. Stay with me. Keep staying with me. Verse 13, these all died in faith, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar from their longing for that, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were promised a land, but they never considered that land their home. They're looking for something greater. There's a greater land. There's a greater place for them to be able to reside. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return to that land. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a what? Heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What does all this mean? Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham and Sarah were given a promise that most certainly came true for them in some ways for their time. They were given offspring. They were given the land. That was true for them in the moment. But while they were promised all that, they did not fully understand. They did not fully get to see their offspring become as numerous as the sand of the seas. They didn't get to see all of their offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. Does that make sense? And so on faith in this Old Testament covenant promise that they would receive an heir and from their heir would come a better heir who would eventually, we would know as Jesus, right? They're given this promise. They're longing for this promise. Not a land they can return to, but to a heavenly land. What does this all have to do with Revelation chapter 7? The apostle John is saying this. Everything that you were promised in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah, has come true. This is a picture of the Old Testament faithfulness, the Old Testament promise, the Hebrew covenant manifesting itself as reality for them. The 144,000 or all that were in Israel that God would deem the elect that remained faithful to the covenant. And so the apostle John here is saying, this is that. This is that moment. Everything that you long for. I mean, can you just picture, church, like everything you've ever longed for and craved and worked for. Like imagine when you graduate a class or you get a new job or you finish a project and there's this like incredible, like overwhelming sense of like, yes, I got it. Like this is for the Jews, but this is thousands of years of longing and waiting and being faithful and upholding the covenants. And now they're standing there before their God and they're saying, dang, we've been redeemed by nothing we could ever do. Holiness is finally complete for them. My God, we can stop working for our salvation, yes? So here they are, these Jews are standing there, these angels are holding back the four horsemen. And what do the Jews do in the midst of tribulation that is coming? They sing in the face of evil. Who are these four horsemen? They've been there the whole time. They're not going to come against Israel. They're not going to come against the church for crying out loud. What are they doing? They're singing in their face. Singing worship. Salvation belongs to this God. This is absolutely in. Incredible, isn't it? That's the first thing we see. I feel like that's enough. I feel like we can maybe take communion now and just celebrate and Mark could come up and close us out, but there's more. We'll keep going. Hey, thank you. We'll keep going. Yeah, I'm feeling much better. So I got some time. We, we don't have a service after this. You know, we'll just do whatever we want. Second point, New Testament then, covenant faithfulness. If you're like, okay, great, pastor, that's about the Jews. The Jews are there. God is faithful to keep his promise. Yes and amen. He's also then faithful to keep the promise to us. We are this, the inheritance. We are the ones to receive this New Testament covenant. Faithfulness was the second point. Revelation 7, verse 9. John says, after this, so he's looking here, seeing the Jews. Now he's just looking over here, looking through this. And he's saying, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Come on now. From every nation, from all tribes and all people and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. This is so profound, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Come on, somebody. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen and amen and amen. Here's why this is so unfathomably profound, church. This is why it's so 
crazy. If you know, again, anything about the Jews and these Gentiles, these ethne, these nations, Jews were not allowed to associate with these women and men. They were considered, the Gentiles were considered unclean. The Jews weren't allowed to associate. The Jews came in contact with the Gentile. They had to do a whole ceremonial rite of purification, right? It was a lot of work that they had to do were they to encounter these Gentiles. And so if a Jewish person were to associate with this Gentile, they regularly were belittling to them. They called them scum. They called them a dog. They literally called them Gentile dogs. Dogs were not like they are in our culture, right? In our culture, you all like paint your dog's fingernails and you put your dog in a $300 clutch because it ain't a purse. It's smaller, but somehow you shove your dog in that thing. They have doggy daycares, right? They did not treat dogs in the same way we treat dogs. They treated dogs in the same way you should treat cats. Like they're abysmal (laughs) characters, right? I'm 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 just saying, I'm reading the book of Revelation. No cats in the kingdom so far. I've not seen them, okay? I've not seen them. That's the way that they treated these Gentiles. And so John is saying, right, not only, listen to this, not only did I see those of the original promise, but I also saw those post-Christ, post-resurrection, post-ascension, those who were faithful in the New Testament, right? And they're worshiping alongside these Jews. This is incredible news for us. Like, think about this. How can you have the civil unrest we have in our culture when this is our future? Like, how can you genuinely have racism when this is our future? How can you walk around with pride and arrogance when this is your future? How can you look down on anyone for any reason, whether it be race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status? How can you have so much turmoil in our country and around the globe and all the war and all the suffering when this is your future, right? Clearly, there is evil at hand, right? Oh, the only right response, when you really get the gospel and what's happening here, that we are clothed in white robes without blemish before the lamb singing salvation belongs to the Lord, the only right response is humility as the church. The only right response is service as the church. And so these Gentiles that the Bible speaks of, church, that is us. We are not the Jews, unless you're raised Jewish in the house, and you're a Messianic Jew for sure, but we are the Gentiles, we are the ethne, we are the nations. The horsemen have not come against us because 2,000 years later, we're in Illinois preaching the gospel. The gospel will prevail. And so Ephesians says this. Let me just remind you of your position before the throne. It is a lot, and it is God's word, and it is worthwhile. So here we go, Ephesians 2. And you, talking to the church, and you, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. One could maybe argue, following the white horse and the black horse we learned about last week. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath. We were not born into a promise, church. Children of wrath. That's pretty clear, yeah? Like the rest of mankind, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. There you go, ladies. There's your next wrist hat. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Come on. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In case you missed it, by grace you have been saved. Now check this out. 
and raised us up. And so what's incredible about that is this worship that we see in Revelation 7, it doesn't just happen in one day, like it's happening right now. This is present tense that Paul is giving to the church, giving to the ethnic, giving to the Gentile. God has raised us up. That is this. this is so mind-blowing. God sees us as if we're already seated with him in the heavenly places, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of depravity, in the midst of brokenness, on your best day, on your worst day, already sees you clothed in white. Come on, somebody. It's crazy, dude. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Not by what we can do, but what Christ Jesus can do. So that, why would he do that, Pastor? Why would he do that, Paul? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, so that we are, when we are finally there, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that when we show up and we see Jews and we see Gentiles and we see people that we don't even want to see in the kingdom of God, there's people in our minds, if we're honest, like that dude ain't making it in, right? Let's be honest, let's be honest. Some people in your missional community, some people in your family, you got some friends from high school you're still mad at, like that cat ain't making it in there, right? We will never be as gracious or as inclusive as Jesus, why does he invite us in so that he can show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus by nothing we can do? In case you miss it again, third time, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Get it through our heads. It's not something that we did. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. Now, verse 11, because all that's true, therefore, remember, here it is again, that at one time you were what? Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision because Gentiles did not get circumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. We were not a part of the original promise. We were not a part of the circumcision. We've been circumcised, not by hands, it says, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. And amen. So who can stand in the midst of tribulation? Who can stand in the midst of suffering? Who is it that gets to stand? Who gets to have their name, have the, the, the Lord's name, Jesus' name, the, lame, the Lamb's name written on our foreheads? We who are deemed righteous, not by our works, but by Christ's work in our place. He said we had no hope, no covenant family, no inheritance, nothing. We were just children of wrath. And God, in the midst of our being born into children of wrath, adopted us into the family and called us sons. What does that mean to be a son? It means we receive the firstborn inheritance as Jesus. What does that mean? It means we get to be seated in the kingdom of God. By what? By nothing we could have done. That is the gospel. This is the covenant of grace. This is the new covenant of grace given to us by the blood of Christ, not just by a promise in the Old Testament. Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ. You still with me? That's a lot. You should have brought a notebook. That means this covenant of grace is unbreakable, man. It is unbreakable. It is unfailing. It is full of mercy. It is full of grace. And it's just simply given to us. His name, Jesus' name is given to us. That means his righteousness given to us. His perfection, even though we're not perfect, 
given to us. Him, his family, we've now been invited into, sealed in the promise. It's not a new promise. It's the fulfillment of every promise he ever made. Listen, Christian, you are sealed in Christ. You didn't earn that. You cannot achieve that. Right? For those of you that feel as if the culture looks down upon you, they do. And praise God for his faithfulness in your place. For those that experience suffering, for those that experience tribulation of various sorts, for those who can't seem to get it together, you feel like you don't measure up, you don't. And praise the Lord for his faithfulness. Don't measure up. Jesus measures up in your place. For those that feel outcast and as if the church is not your home, man, the church's door, her, her doors swing wide open because Christ's arms are wide open. This is the gospel that has been given to us. And check this out. The angels are, I mean, they are completely blown away. Completely blown away. The angels, if you think about it, they didn't get a second chance. Like we get chance upon chance upon chance upon chance. That's the mercy of the gospel given to us. The angels did one and done. They rebelled once, done. A third of the angels kicked out of the kingdom of heaven. The book of Luke says, uh, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. And a third of his followers fell. The angels did not get the same grace that we are given. Verse 11, with that in mind, makes verse 11 make sense. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Listen to this. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power, and might, and they could just keep saying, and this, and that, and this, and that, and this, and that, for all eternity, and they would never exhaust themselves of adjectives to describe the Lord. And this, you're given this, and this, and he says, for you, for power, and glory, and might, be to our God forever, and forever, and forever, and forever, and forever. So the angels, the whole angelic host, is literally worshiping Right? It says in First or Second Peter that the angels are longing to see how the gospel plays itself out. This is the way it plays itself out. And so the angels are there like, we didn't get the same grace. We didn't get the same mercy. Yet here are these rebellious Jews, these rebellious Gentiles standing before the glory of this magnificent God. And they have his righteousness has been placed upon them. And his perfection has been placed upon them. And every attribute that they say about God in this text has been placed upon the saints by nothing that they had done, by simply by grace and by mercy. Church, that is a liberating truth for us. My gosh, that's such good news for me. And so that's true. If that's true, then he's faithful in the Old Testament, most Old Testament, Old Covenant, Hebrew Covenant. Then he's also then, as we're learning, faithful in the New Testament. That is the Greek covenant. That's the promise to us as Gentiles, which then means, thirdly, last point, God is eternally, covenantly faithful. He's eternally, covenantly faithful. Verse 13 helps sum this up. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white, uh, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? In verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation that is going to come. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What's incredible about this, church, is that this is just playful banter. Literally what happened here in the Greek original, it's just playful banter. This elder comes over to the apostle John. He says, who's that? 
John's like, you know who that is. And he's like, of course I know who that is. That's everyone that God promised would be here. It is a complete and total picture of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Every single thing that he said he would do, he has most certainly accomplished in and through Christ. What it does not say is that they measured up. It does not say that they tried really, really hard to get to this position and finally earned their way into salvation. It doesn't say that they took, they kind of knocked Jesus off the throne, sat on the throne and took his place and they navigated their whole lives as control freaks and had everything figured out. They were super type A and one day they just made it into the kingdom of heaven. Sorry for those of you that are type A that have lists for your list. Your list aren't going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Right? Jesus gets you into the kingdom of heaven. And so this, what it's reminding us of is that we can step off of the throne of God. Like you can try to sit on the throne of God, and you can sit on it, but you're never going to fill it. There's a, a video I came across the other day. I'm going to do a sports illustration for those of you that know me. This will... I, come on. Here we go. There's this video that I watched the other day about Kobe Bryant and uh, Michael Jordan. And Kobe, Kobe Bryant had on a pair of Jordans, and they caught the audio of Michael Jordan talking to Kobe and Michael Jordan says to Kobe Bryant, hey, you can wear them, but you'll never fill them. Which is pretty awesome. <laughs> hey, listen, you can sit on the throne, church, but you're never going to fill it. You're not going to fill it. The reality is in this room, we can all identify with both the Jew and also the Gentiles that are here in the text. Uh, the Jews tried to save themselves, man. They thought that they were Lord. Uh, they were self-righteous. They thought they had it all figured out. They were prideful. They were arrogant. They thought they were a little bit better than everyone else. Tell me we don't fall into that at times, right? Especially with some of the cultural things that are happening right now as predominantly conservative Christians, we can tend to look down on those who think differently than us, yes? No different than the Jews in that time. You also then have the Gentiles, and the Gentiles also tried to save themselves, but not as Lord, but as Savior. They just kind of rebelled. They were a bit of outcasts. They did their own thing. And so that's no different than many that exist within the church. They want to rebel against the promises of God. They want to rebel against the pastors, rebel against leaders. We call them behind the scenes. We call you runners. We talk about you whenever you're not there. Like, oh, they're a runner. She's a runner. He's a runner. That is someone who identifies with the Gentiles. The reality is this. You do not have to be Lord, nor do you have to be Savior, because Jesus is both. That's the purpose of this text. This text is not to instill fear in you as a Christian. If someone has gotten up and preached the book of Revelation to you to instill fear in you, they have wildly missed the gospel. They've completely missed it. There are things that are coming that in some ways will be fearful because we are human and we live in a fallen world. But across the board, the response to Revelation chapter 7 is worship. We do not have to be Lord. We do not have to be Savior because there is a very real Jesus who sits on the throne in our place as our substitute and has literally earned every single aspect of our inheritance that we could ever be given by nothing we could ever do. He has earned all of it. He is the one that is worthy to open the scroll. He is the one who puts his name upon us. He makes us righteous. He gives us the freedom to stand before him. We simply get to rest in the gospel. And then because that is true, verse 15, why don't you stand with me for verse 15 and I'll lead you into communion as well. I want you to hear the promises of God to the saints, true for them during their time and true for us as well. And then we'll take communion. Verse 15 says this, therefore, so because of everything that was just said, and it was a lot, therefore, they are before the throne of God, that is Jew, that is Gentile, those who are 
faithful to the covenant to believe. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Come on now. Verse 16, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the promise that is given to us as Christians. That while tribulation might come, while suffering may come, while sickness, death, while the four horsemen may reign in some ways and bring about calamity and destruction to this earth, there is a real Jesus who sets in full authority and full sovereignty on his throne in perfection. And we get to sit before that throne, stand before that throne and say, salvation belongs to him. Salvation belongs to the Lord forever and forever and forever. Amen. Every week we take communion together as a family. And so I want to invite you to do that now. You don't have to be a covenant member. So if you're a guest in the house, as long as you profess faith in the gospel, you're more than welcome to partake in communion with us. Simply make your way to the front. There's baskets on both sides of the room, small baskets that have the communion elements in them for you. You're more than welcome, culturally appropriate, to just walk up there and get those at any time. The Apostle Paul, whenever he ushers in communion for the saints in 1 Corinthians, he says this. We read this every week. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Listen, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is instituting a covenant of grace, the new covenant of grace that we've been invited into. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, here it is, this cup is the new covenant. It's the covenant of mercy. It's the covenant of grace. Second Corinthians would say, it's a covenant of the spirit. It is an unbreakable covenant that will never change where Jesus will always remain at the head of it. The Old Testament covenant was always going to come to an end, even though it was incredible in glory and honor and majesty. It was never sufficient to save. Only Jesus is sufficient to save through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And so it says, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is not a religious event that we do every week. Communion is a redemptive event that we do every week. It is an opportunity for us to physically ingest the gospel into us and ingest the covenant of grace into us. We get to take in his body, take in his blood, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. And we're reminded then of the legal separate or the legal consequences and the spiritual separation that he took so that we don't have to take those. Communion is a redemptive event. And even more so, it is also a foreshadowing of Revelation 7, of a messianic banquet where we get to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we get to feast with him literally forever. Amen and amen. For those of you that are saints, the table is open.